listening to Cleaning the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. The last episode called Calling All Citizens, uh, basically, just to, to summarize, focused on those who profess Christ, who have accepted uh, his proposal of marriage, what, what I like to call the gospel, uh, because I believe that Jesus came to redeem a bride, and that's what the gospel is. It's literally a, a proposal of marriage. And Scripture tells us that those who belong to Jesus, that our citizenship is now in heaven, that we are already seated in a heavenly realm with Jesus. And like Paul, um, we are ambassadors in chains while we remain on this earth. But there has been a lot of confusion uh, between the priority that we are called to uh, for our heavenly citizenship as well as all others who are heavenly citizens, uh, not not just in our, our own churches and communities, but, but those heavenly citizens around the world. Um, that's the kingdom of God. But we have a difficult time uh, making that our priority and not our earthly citizenships, not our national citizenships. And every time we lose sight of that fact, uh, we it may not be intentionally, but, but often uh, is the case, is that we end up doing harm to other citizens of heaven, especially when we uh, choose um, realms like uh, the political realms um, for trying to bring about the kingdom of God, cause the kingdom of God to come, come to bear. But I I feel like this this is really kind of a I'm not listing this as part two, but but I believe it it is a continuation of that first episode calling all citizens. Um, this episode, episode twelve, I have titled Law versus Grace. Now, is there really any reason to pursue a deeper understanding uh, when it comes to law versus grace? I mean, if we truly believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah and that he came not to abolish the law but to fill it, fulfill it, then we need to know what that means for us now on a day-to-day -day basis. Otherwise, what happens is we blend the law and grace and, and create really a, a hybrid Christian faith, uh, blurring the lines between uh, these two, uh, the two covenants. And that, you know, when we blur those lines, then we really blur uh, 
the lines um, in our understanding of Jesus, what it means to follow him, what it means to look like him, and, and perhaps really uh, the fund on a fundamental basis the confusion comes because because we we claim salvation through Jesus we believe Jesus to be the promised messiah and so we stand on that and we preach and we teach that but we l- lose sight beyond that for what it looks like to be like Jesus while we are on earth. What it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. And, and the, the best example we have is Jesus himself leading up to his uh, crucifixion, death, defeating death, and resurrection and ascending into heaven where he is seated right now at the right hand of his Father, our Father, once we are in, in Christ. Separating the law and grace uh, was obviously a problem even from the very early days of the church, the, the beginnings of the church. Um, and, and this fact is probably recorded for us. The, the best example, most complete example we have is in the the book of Galatians, uh, where Paul is at some length addressing this issue in great detail, especially in the third chapter, uh, so much so that that I want to begin um, with this third chapter in Ephesians. In fact, I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll look at different parts of it. Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So ask yourselves again, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. I'm going to read that again because it's a really important line. This is verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Picking back up with verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. 
because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. This is a really important passage, verse 16, that I just started. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean by this, Paul says, the law introduced 430 years later, in other words, after God made this promise to Abraham, the law was introduced 430 years after this, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? This is another really important verse, verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was a guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under the law. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This last verse, verse 29, I want to repeat. Now, if you belong to Christ, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, a slave or a free man, or a, a male or female, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, this gets really tricky and maybe even controversial when we start wading into this territory, uh, talking about a covenant of grace versus the law. But what we're really talking about uh, is a promise. And, and, and I want to try and simplify this as much as possible because, because if this is taken the wrong way, then, then it, 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 it can come across as being anti-Semitic, which is not. Uh, it, it's not at all. And that, that would be contrary to everything that Jesus came to do and, and taught uh, but at the same time, um, when we lose our perspective uh, for being citizens of heaven, already being in a heavenly realm with Jesus, uh, then we become focused on those things that, that are very earthly bound, including the law, but um, especially nationhood. So I'll, I'll try and make this as simple as I can, uh, and, and hopefully uh, it will make sense. You know, it, th this is an area that um, is uh, that gets into people's beliefs. People don't change their beliefs. People will change their opinions, but but beliefs are rock solid. Uh, they are immovable, and, and only God... Uh, can can change or alter our beliefs or give us new insights and understanding for something uh, that we have come to believe. Um, let me say first, um, moving forward, I, I want to talk about myself and most of the church, uh, not just now, but but historically, has been uh, made up of Gentile population, uh, not not a Jewish population, and and I bring this up because our story, our faith begins post resurrection of Jesus, and and it didn't happen immediately after. Uh, his resurrection, the, the first uh, insights uh, for the fulfillment of the promise through Jesus being extended 
to Gentiles was when Peter was up on the rooftop praying at noon and God uh, gives him this vision and unfolds the sheet and basically says everything is clean. Uh, and it was very confusing to Peter at, at first, but then he finally realized God was saying that, that now Gentiles who had been considered to be unclean uh, by Jews were, were now no longer strangers to the faith. Uh, everybody is, is welcome now. And then the next thing that happens, of course, is with Paul, who ends up having as his specific mission to bring the good news, the gospel, uh, the truth of salvation to the Gentiles, to this emerging Gentile church. And the reason I make a point of this is as Gentiles, I mean, this happened to me uh, when, when, when I uh, first surrendered my life to Jesus, accepted his proposal of marriage, which is what I call the gospel. Um, you know, what happens to me is what typically happens to all of us. We, we become a part of a fellowship, a church, and that church may be part of a larger denomination, but, but every church or denomination has uh, a specific area of doctrinal focus that they believe is, is the most important uh, to know and to adhere to. Things like whether we should have infant baptism or not, or whether baptism should be uh, through full immersion in water or just sprinkled on the top of the head. Uh, there, there are uh, lots of different doctrines that, that each denomination and even individual independent churches ascribe to. And I get that because I experienced that myself on a very, very personal level. Uh, and, and what happens is, is our worlds begin to become smaller and smaller and smaller in terms of those influences that come into our lives. We, we, we tend to surround ourselves more and more only with people who agree uh, with what we have come to agree with. The things that, that we hear taught and preached all come from that perspective. Things that we, we read about our faith, uh, Christian books, or when we you know, read scripture, we, we see it in terms of these doctrinal perspectives and, and teachings. And over time, we become pretty hard-shelled about these beliefs. Now, understanding that, that, that I'm a Gentile and that the majority of, uh, of those who have uh, believed in Jesus uh, throughout history, uh, predominantly Gentile population, um, it's been hard for me to come to a place of realizing that as Gentiles, 
we were not part of or included in Israel's history prior to Christ's resurrection. In other words, God's first chosen people were Abraham's descendants. They were the, the keepers of the promise through which the, the promise of the seed would be born through. We as Gentiles have no part in that. We were not included in that. Uh, when 430 years later after uh, God makes this promise to Abraham, it was a promise made uh, through grace based on Abraham's faith. His righteousness was accounted to Abraham based on his faith. 430 years after God makes this promise, because of Israel's transgressions, God gives Moses the law and establishes the, the high priest system, the priesthood with a high priest, uh, the system uh, that included uh, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Holy of Holies. Uh, that was meant to be a temporary system leading up until Christ came, who came to not do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. But that was a temporary system. And in fact, Scripture says it was a, a shadow and copy of a heavenly realm of the heavenly realm. So Gentiles were not a part of that. They had no part in any of that. But by faith, preceding the law coming through Moses to the Jews and the high priest system that was established, uh, but only temporarily to be a shadow and copy of what was taking place in a heavenly realm, We are Abraham's children by faith, going all the way back to God's original promise to Abraham. But we are not his children during that period where the Jews are the protectors the keepers of the promise, the seed, who God intended to reveal his glory to the world, which he did when Jesus was born. So our, our, I hope this makes sense. Our beginning with faith in Jesus begins after the resurrection. We have nothing, no history, no heritage prior to that. Now, remember back when I was reading uh, Galatians 3, 
um, and I pointed out that verse 16, I pointed out several verses that, that are really, really standout verses, but, but verse 16 says, the promises were spoken to Abraham, this is by God, and to his seed, singular, goes on to say, scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, and that one person is Christ. I'm going to read it again. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. This is so critically important and something that, that I really have not always understood because it's not what I uh, was really ever taught, not, not in the circles um, that, that I have belonged to, especially not in, in my early formative days of following Jesus. Uh, what, one of the, the confusing things, I think, is that in the Old Testament, um, in several places, um, well, two places specifically, one is Genesis 17, 7, um, when God is making his promise or his covenant with, with Abraham, and the other one is, is even earlier. It is in Genesis 3.15 uh, when God is, first talks about the seed. The same seed that God uh, makes his covenant agreement with Abraham and that in, in Galatians uh, 3.16 where he says it's one seed, not many seeds, this is where I think the confusion comes in. And th this is an instance, I, I don't really often stand on different translations uh, of the Bible. You know, some people believe that it is heretical not to use only the King James Version. Uh, I am not one of those people. But, but in this instance, uh, I, I truly have come to believe that the King James translation has gotten it absolutely right uh, when it comes to this word seed. Uh, and you won't know it if you don't make this connection in Galatians 3.16 where it's pointing out that it's seed singular, meaning Jesus, and seeds plural. Because uh, in both instances, in Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 17.7, it is translated as the plural in the NIV. So I, I'm going to read the NIV first. Genesis uh, 3.15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Offspring sounds plural. It comes across as being plural. In the NIV, again, in Genesis 17, 7, in the NIV, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants, plural, 
after you, your descendants after you, for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. That's why there's so much confusion here. Because in both of these instances, it is supposed to be singular, not plural. I'm going to read the King James Version now. Genesis 3, 15. God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And seed in the King James is capitalized because it's talking about Jesus. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. When the word seed is there, it, it is so much uh, different than offspring, because offspring is many. It's many, and this is just talking about one, the one, Jesus. In Genesis 17, 7, again in the King James, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, or me and you, and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. You know, I understand why this is, is so confusing. Um, because it, it, it comes across that God is just talking about those physical descendants of Abraham. Uh, and, and he is, but more importantly, he is speaking about Jesus and that those who will be his physical descendants will be the protectors of, of this truth that God's seed beginning with what God says to Eve to Adam and Eve both but specifically talking about Eve uh, and her seed um, the promise of Jesus who will come to deliver, redeem and restore that promise that seed comes up next with with Abraham his, his righteousness was counted, accounted to him because of his faith. And this promise was given by God before the law through grace. It was an act of grace that God made this covenant, that he chose Abraham as the next link in the promise that God made to Adam and Eve uh, for his seed. So the descendants of Abraham are the Jews, who we call Israel and Judah. And because of their transgressions, the law was given, was handed down to Moses. I've already, I know I've already said this, but I'm going to, to repeat it. Uh, for the Jews, this system was put into place to be a 
have a temporary existence, but because of man's sinfulness, the, the system and obedience to the law became the object of worship. And it, it became so extreme that righteousness was the accounted to individuals based on their keeping not just a few laws, but laws upon laws upon laws that were added to the original law handed down uh, by God to Moses. And those who kept the most laws were considered to be the greatest in the kingdom. And those who kept the least laws were, of course, considered to be least in the kingdom. Where the tension comes in, I think, at least uh, this is... Uh, been what has been pointed out to me um, comes up in in Matthew 5 starting around the middle of this chapter um, with verse 17 but but I, I want to kind of address the first part of what Jesus is saying in the first part of, of chapter 5 because this, this is what we call uh, the Beatitudes. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is grace. This is what Jesus came to do when he fulfilled uh, the law. Uh, when he offered himself up, defeated death, was resurrected and ascended into heaven. This is a picture of what we are supposed to look like because this is what Jesus himself looked like. And this was, in fact, even what the Jews were supposed to look like. But the law, unfortunately, because of their transgressions, uh, distorted this. But, but this is what he said. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God, of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand, on a nightstand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come, not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Before going, reading on in this chapter, I think it would be good to to kind of interject at this point. You know, I've already said that the promise was given to Abraham uh, by grace, through grace. Um, he was considered to be righteous based on faith, not works of the law or obedience to the law, which didn't come for 430 years. And, and it was handed down through Moses. The high priest system was established. Um, the, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, uh, the sacrificial system, all of that was put into place because of Israel's transgressions and and it it became really a a form of government uh, what what we would now call a theocracy and a theocracy uh, is a system of government in which the priests rule in the name of God uh, this was a commonwealth of Israel. That's what it was considered to be. And it lasted from the time of Moses when God handed down the law and established the high priest system. Um, it ruled over Israel and was called a theocracy. But it ended, it ended when Israel was no longer satisfied with that form of government, that system, and they demanded a king. And you know the story about God said, you don't need a king. Yes, we do. We want a king. And so God gave them what they insisted on. Saul. Saul became their king. And Saul was, was very corrupt. Uh, and, and Israel uh, suffered under Saul's rule. And it was after, while Saul uh, was ruler, that uh, God chose David, picked David, to eventually become king over Israel. And that, that's what, uh, who, the, the religious leaders at the time that Jesus came, that's what they were expecting. They were expecting a ruler, a king like David. Uh, Palestine was, the Jews were, were living under Roman occupation. They were being persecuted on a daily basis. Um, they wanted to, to throw off the yoke of this oppression. And so they, they were anticipating a Messiah who would be a warrior king like David and deliver them up out of the hands of the Romans and, and free their land. 
so that they could uh, establish uh, their own rule based on their own faith. And it, it was for that reason uh, that, that Jesus makes plain in chapter 5, verse 17 in Matthew, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them because they, they thought he was basically creating anarchy. Jesus never broke the law. Jesus uh, submitted to it because he was submitting to his Father's will in all things. And he knew what had been established um, in Israel with the Jewish people uh, as a temporary system uh, put into place because of their transgressions in order for the fulfillment of the law for him to be born, for the seed to become flesh and blood. And so he is trying to assure them that he has not come to disrupt any of that. He's come to fulfill what it is they already are supposed to believe and, and be in anticipation of. And so he goes on and the mistake that is made uh, has been made by some who look at these passages and, and interpret them, who interestingly are Gentiles who were never under the law in the first place. But Jesus is almost, what he's saying here is almost, if you understand the context that he's saying this, right after he gives the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, it, it, it approaches sarcasm, what he's saying here. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And let me just say that Jesus accomplished everything on the cross. He said that it is finished right before he dies. It was accomplished. But he's also talking about how retentive they are about the law. The, the, the smallest uh, stroke of a pen that he's talking about, the smallest symbol uh, or, or letter in the Hebrew uh, alphabet uh, is, is called the Yod. And when Sarai, Abraham's wife, her name was changed to Sarah, there, the, the Yod was removed from Scripture. And, and it, it, it created a crisis of conscience, conscience in Israel. And it wasn't until um, Joshua, who, who was not Joshua but at first, but his name was changed to Joshua, that the Yod, this, this stroke of the pen, was added back into Scripture and everyone was at peace again. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands 
will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's sarcasm. He is repeating to them what it is that they believe. He's not stating this as actual fact going forward. And it certainly, even if he was, it wouldn't apply to those who were never under the law. That's us, those who are Gentiles. We were never under the law to begin with. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying this going forward. What he's saying is this is what their system was. Uh, those who kept the very jot and tittle of the law, all of the laws, that was the measure of their righteousness, and they were considered to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And those who didn't, um, they were least. They were considered to be. But this was man's appraisal. This, Jesus is not saying this from the point of view that this was God's basis, his determination for who is least. You know, he says later just the opposite. Um, those who are least will be greatest, and those who are greatest will be least. I mean, it's a total contradiction of what, what has even been pointed out to me about the law and that we have to keep it. We are still under it. It doesn't mean that we don't have to obey the law. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what uh, is, is being said here. Of course we have to obey the law. But our obedience to the law is not what, what saves us. It's not how we receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, this, this is not the measure of our righteousness. Our righteousness comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. When we accept his proposal of marriage, we are adopted into our Heavenly Father's family, uh, and Christ's righteousness is in us. God sees Jesus, the last Adam, not the first Adam. We are no longer identified with the first Adam, only the second and last Adam, who is Jesus. And, and to, to prove this, this point, um, Jesus goes on to say, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there... Remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, 
and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See what he's saying? He's saying, okay, you want to live by the law? All 600, however many laws uh, were added on to, to the original law introduced, given to Moses and, and introduced by Moses to Israel in establishing that high priest system? You, you think you're righteous? You think you are the greatest in the kingdom of God because you have outwardly obeyed all of these laws, these rules and regulations? Well, guess what? You have to go further than that. It's about your heart. That's what God judges, the heart, not the outward appearance. So, so you don't murder, you don't steal, you don't covet. Uh, well, guess what? You are in your minds. Your minds are filthy. Your thoughts are, are impure. You have anger and hatred towards others. It's the same as murder. You're lusting in your mind, in your heart. Guess what? You have committed adultery. So, You also can't sin in your thoughts, in your attitudes. If, if, if this is the course that you want to take, and of course, that is impossible to do. Jesus came to clean us from the inside out, to purify us from the inside out. That's the only way God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can reside in us. The Holy Spirit can only reside in a place that is righteous already, that has been made righteous through Jesus. So I, I get that, that these passages in the middle of Matthew chapter 5, especially when you take them out of the context of the rest of the the chapter, if you just look at them, it looks like, oh, we still, we are still under the law and we have to obey the law. Even if, if we were Jews at this time and came to accept Jesus, to believe that he is the promised seed, promised to, to Eve first and then to Abraham, even as a Jew, you would no longer be under the law. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain here by starting out with the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and then, then showing, but for those who, who stand with the law to be obedient to every single stroke of the pen of it, guess what? If your hearts haven't changed, if you have not been transformed in your hearts, then God knows your thoughts. He knows your hearts, and he knows that this is just an outward demonstration of something that is not inwardly real. Abraham's righteousness was counted, accounted 
to him based on his faith. And thus it was by grace, through grace, that God made this promise to him. So, as Gentiles who were never under the law to begin with, it is pointless to try and insert ourselves in here. Perhaps looking at Ephesians 2, a book which I have talked about before, a book written to Gentiles, written by Paul to Gentiles, and you'll, you'll notice uh, by contrast uh, the book of Hebrews which was written uh, to Jews, um, there is really very little that talks about in, in Ephesians, that is, that, that talks about the history of Israel, the history of the Jewish faith. Uh, it does not really put it, uh, the faith, the Christian faith, in that context because Gentiles have been excluded from the faith, from citizenship in heaven, citizenship in Israel, um, until after Jesus has been resurrected. And Paul uh, is specifically called to a ministry with Gentiles to share the gospel with Gentiles that they are no longer excluded from the promise. Uh, reading uh, beginning in chapter 2 verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, that's all of us who aren't Jewish, even today, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. The promise is the seed, which is Jesus, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh, listen to this, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, out of the two, out of Jew and Gentile flesh, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, 
And I will add, in him alone, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Romans chapter 2. This is Paul once again in his letter to the Romans, uh, beginning with verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because because you were instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob the temples? Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has a value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. This is perfectly in keeping with what was just read in Ephesians, that the separation between uh, Jew and Gentile Uh, has been removed, that God's chosen people are now those who he calls to himself, Jew and Gentile alike, male and female alike, young and old, rich and poor alike, and those are his chosen people. If you are betrothed to Jesus, then you are God's chosen people people. That's what Romans is telling us. That's what Ephesians is telling us. But let's look at at Hebrews. Let's look at what it tells us, uh, this letter uh, that has been specifically written to Jews in the context of the Jewish faith, the, the history and traditions of the Jewish faith. I want to start by looking at uh, chapter 8, verse 1 in Hebrews. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne 
of the majesty in heaven and serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. What we learn in, in chapter 7, just preceding this, is talking about Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek is in the uh, Old Testament, in Genesis, and he was a high priest uh, that was said to, his, his high priesthood was eternal. He was said to have no beginning and no end. And if you remember, uh, he had an encounter with, with Abraham. Uh, Abraham, after defeating his enemy, gives him uh, a tenth of, of all that, that he acquires. And that is the high priestly order that Jesus now is with no beginning and no end. It is an eternal priesthood because the temporary priesthood that was established once the law was given through, through Moses, which is, if you'll remember, the law was given 430 years after God made his promise to Abraham to send his seed uh, through his descendants. And, and this system was set up uh, because of Israel's transgressions, but it was flawed. It was only as good as the present high priest who was serving. Uh, if he was corrupt, if he was sinful, uh, then if he went into the Holy of Holies, he would be struck dead. And they would have to get a completely new high priest if they had a an honorable, uh, uncorrupt, uncorrupted high priest who was truly repentant. Then that was great for Israel. But eventually he would die. It would be temporary, and they would have to start all over again, and it would just have to repeat itself. And the system was only as good as those who who oversaw it. Uh, the high priest himself. It was meant only to be a shadow and copy of the heavenly realm. It was not meant to be permanent. It was flawed uh, because it was completely being conducted by sinners. So Jesus serves now in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Verse 3 in chapter 8, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. In other words, there was no room for an eternal high priest on earth that system was already in place. They serve at a sanctuary, earthly priest and the high priest. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator 
is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. So, see, it says here that the new covenant essentially renders that first covenant null and void. We cannot, as Christians, have a hybrid faith with two covenants being under the law and under grace, especially if we are Gentiles who were never under the first covenant. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Oh, if that were only true. We still, because of the way we, as Gentile believers, have inserted ourselves into uh, the old covenant, the, the history of the Jewish people in Israel, the descendants of, of Abraham, uh, we, we try and interpret even what is going on today in the world as if all of that is still in place and a factor. Remember, Hebrews is being written to Jews, and so that's why it talks about Israel and Judah. But now Israel and Judah, so to speak, is made up of both Jew and Gentile alike. There is no separation. There is no discrimination. Gentiles are citizens of Israel, which means we, being a Jew, is having our hearts circumcised, accepting Jesus having the Holy Spirit dwell in us and our, our physical frameworks, our bodies being a temple unto the Lord. There is no specific place anymore, including the political nation of Israel, uh, the city of Jerusalem, that has 
any place for any more promise to be fulfilled in the and if we conduct ourselves if we believe that there's still something to be fulfilled through this or any nation setting any nation above any other nation saying that that any nation is more favored of God than any other nation then we have completely lost sight for our being under a covenant of grace and only a covenant of grace that our priority is for being citizens in heaven seated with Jesus in the heavenly realm and like Paul ambassadors in chains as long as we remain on this earth if this is still not clear, let, let me read just a little bit further in, in Hebrews, uh, which I think goes into even more detail about this, the first temporary system that, that was established, uh, chapter 9. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary, which, of course, we know was made with human hands. Verse 2, a tabernacle was set up in its first room with a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, or the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order, We're talking about Jesus coming in the new covenant. But when Christ came as high priest, and again, his high priesthood is an eternal one in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the biblical precedent, his high priesthood, his eternal priesthood that had no beginning and end was the precedent for Jesus' priesthood. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle 
that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. And that's really important because this whole system under the first covenant, under the law, only provided an outward cleansing. Verse 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself up again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place or the holy of holies every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. In 2007, Michael Oren, uh, an American-born Israeli 
who was also uh, the ambassador to the United States uh, from Israel uh, from 2009 to 2013, wrote an amazing book called Power, Faith, and Fantasy, America in the Middle East from 1776 to the Present. Uh, this wasn't his first book. He wrote another book uh, called Six Days of War. Uh, he's an amazing writer, and um, the research he does is is just uh, it, it just is kind of mind-boggling to me. But uh, in in this book, Power, Faith, and Fantasy, uh, he he talks about uh, in the Around the 1830s in the United States, there was a movement of essentially evangelical Christians who were uh, restorationists, uh, believing that uh, Christ would return only when Israel was once again established as a nation. And so there was this movement. to try and help Palestine uh, be repopulated uh, by Jews going all the way back uh, to the 1830s. And uh, there was a lot of missionary activity that occurred, um, but very, very little uh, fruit from it in terms of conversions, which was, was part of the strategy. And what resulted was uh, the strategy turned from just evangelism, basically, to establishing schools in hospitals uh, in the Middle East by missionaries, by evangelical uh, missionaries. And it's really interesting that um, 150 years later, um, we, we find similar views of the Middle East, of, of Palestine, of Israel, uh, and their, their nationhood, and uh, Jerusalem, and in some way looking at it for being the measuring stick or the, the means for assessing the times uh, and Christ's return. The problem becomes that that when so much of Christendom, it's not that we are not to look for Christ's return, um, but how much does that interfere with our day-to-day walk, uh, reflecting Jesus to the world around us, to, to living out our faith, in Jesus according to the model that he lived out for us before he died, before he offered his life up, as well as the life of the apostles. Because the the church um, that is not built with human hands has been established on a foundation uh, in the prophets as well as the apostles, with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. The problem that occurred again and again in Israel was really the system uh, 
of the high priest system, the sacrificial system, and the place of Jerusalem became the object of worship. It became the worship of a system. And everything we have covered in this episode says that once Jesus defeated death, uh, was resurrected from the dead, and ascended into heaven, into the heavenly sanctuary, that that system was rendered obsolete, which means that place no longer held the importance that it did for fulfilling the promise that God made to Eve first to send his seed, and then the covenant he made based on grace with Abraham, and then his descendants to be guardians of this truth of the seed until the seed was born, which was Jesus. So in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed and there was no longer an inner sanctuary, uh, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, there was no place for the high priest, for an earthly high priest, to be able to go in and offer atonement uh, through the sacrificing of animals, the shedding of blood. That system was completely rendered once and for all obsolete. So we are no longer under that old system, that old covenant. Yet, because of some interpretations, end-time interpretations, and there are many, and everyone believes that they are absolutely correct and can correctly predict almost step by step, what is going to happen leading up to Christ's return? Well, let me pose the question. What if there might be a little bit of truth in all of those, which I'm, I'm certain there probably is, but it takes away our focus on Jesus and our day-to-day -day faithfulness to him for what it means to love him with our hearts, minds, and souls, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, and especially to see our heavenly citizenship as our priority while we are on earth, and all of those other heavenly citizens around the world, and not place our priorities on our national citizenship. Any one culture or ethnic group, or nationality, that there is no priority anymore. Everyone is equally offered the opportunity to receive Jesus. So what if we get it wrong? What if because so many people who have offered their interpretations and the, the more power and influence they have to try and bring these interpretations to bear, what if there is no longer 
a purpose for Israel as a nation or Jerusalem in terms of its significance because the promise has already been fulfilled. The promise has been fulfilled and now the new covenant is built on better promises because it doesn't have anything to do with this world anymore. It is our way out. It is the second exodus. But if we still believe, because we have combined these two covenants, made this hybrid Christian faith, what if, because we have gotten it wrong, we are what we have come to believe about Armageddon, the, the ultimate battle where it will bring everything to an end. And there's certainly a lot going on in the Middle East to lead us to believe that. But if we've gotten it wrong, wouldn't that mean that if we believe that, that we are, in effect, have become complicit in actually causing that to come about? And the ways that we are, in effect, being complicit for causing that to come about is by our having yoked ourselves with political, civil, governmental authorities. Unequally yoked ourselves. Scripture is very clear that we should not be unequally yoked. And as I said in the last episode... It wasn't until the high priest yoked himself with the civil political authorities that they were able to have Jesus condemned to death and crucified. So if, if we believe this, that, that the political nation of Israel is a promise that God made to clearly let us know that Christ's return is imminent, which is not unlike the belief in the 1830s that evangelical Christians who were called restorationists back then uh, believed that and tried to make that happen, uh, that we are equally guilty today uh, for having uh, mis interpreted scripture based on a combination of a first covenant and second covenant perspective that we yoking ourselves with political authorities with one of our chief aims is essentially causing this destruction to ultimately take place in the Middle East in Matthew uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 43. I know we have talked pretty extensively about uh, this chapter, uh, but I just want to read two verses. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul starts off uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 12, saying, our struggles are not against flesh and blood. Why? Because we are not earth-bound. 
if we believe that God is a sovereign God, that he is in control of everything, and that uh, in Christ, uh, being betrothed to Christ, uh, believing him to be our eternal high priest as well as, as husband, Savior, Messiah, already seated in the heavenly realm next to uh, our heavenly Father, uh, and we are seated with him, that our eyes are on him, our hearts, our, our, our mission, our, our purpose is about the kingdom of God. It's about those other kingdom citizens that are around the world. You know, it's there, in the same way there is no Jew nor Gentile when it comes to those that God will choose to be citizens of heaven, uh, citizens in Israel, spiritual Israel. That's Arabs, that's Asians, that's Caucasians, that's Africans, that's Hispanics. Every race, nationality, ethnicity uh, throughout the world, there are citizens of heaven. And yet, it would seem that because we have been tempted by fear and succumbed to fear, we fear everyone and everything that is not just like us. And we justify it through false reasoning, through self-deception. Believing, uh, I believe, in some wrong interpretations of Scripture when it, when it comes to focusing on the end of days, you know, how it will all come to a conclusion, you know, in the Middle East, you know, Armageddon. Um, and so we, we pit ourselves as believers, as citizens of heaven against earthly kingdoms, which, again, Ephesians 6.12 says, no, you know, our struggles aren't against earthly kingdoms aren't against flesh and blood, but, but places in a heavenly realm, principalities, kingdoms of darkness, kingdoms that are unseen. There are those in every nation that God will appoint to be citizens in heaven along with us. And that is what our purpose and focus has to be. We cannot place as a priority our allegiances to to any any earthly citizenship or a nation yes god in his sovereignty has placed us in different nations throughout the world to be salt and light to bear witness to him through the laying down of our lives to, through being uh, living in holy sacrifices, 
which is our spiritual service of worship, to deny self that, like Jesus, we are here to serve and not be served, that we are to think even more highly of others than we do ourselves, and we cannot discriminate in that. We have to embrace and love every group of people, every nationality of people, every ethnicity of people throughout the world. And we, we cannot say that God loves this group of people more than, than others, that, that this nation is more highly blessed than, than other nations. The blessing is in Jesus and that we have eternal life through him. And a way has been made for us to be with him in paradise for all eternity. That's, that's the blessing. Does God have purposes throughout history? Uh, in each age for raising up nations and causing nations to, to of course he does. But, but to say that one nation is, is more favored over another nation by God uh, when there are believers, citizens of heaven, uh, in all of these nations, you know, we, we have to to not only love our enemies, but, but pray for our enemies. We cannot side with, with one people over another people when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. We cannot serve Jesus to the exclusion of others who are equally citizens of heaven, already seated in a heavenly realm, with Jesus. But that's what happens. That's what we see going on today. And it's not new. It's, it's happened for 2,000 years. But if we cannot understand that we are under grace, the new covenant built on better promises, and that the old covenant has been ruled null and void, is obsolete it is no longer in effect. And that, especially as Gentiles who were never under the covenant of the law, who were never under the earthly high priest system, it doesn't apply to us because it never applied to us. We are part of the better promise. We are citizens of heaven. We are Jews, not by flesh and blood, but by spiritual circumcision of our hearts. We have been cleansed from the inside out. And our lives are no longer ours. They don't belong to us anymore. We are ambassadors in chains here to fulfill God's will meeting the needs of others, placing the needs of others above our own wants and desires, our own selfish wants and desires, because selfishness is self-worship. When God told Adam not to eat fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that fruit was only meant for him. 
when they ate the fruit, they committed an act of self-worship, and their eyes were open, and they had self-awareness, and they became selfish in that process. They were compromised in their full allegiance to God and their allegiance to themselves. We're doing the same thing today, only we are under grace and God forgives us and will not exclude us to the place that he has promised that we can be with him for eternity. Which means that our hope cannot be in anybody else or anything else. No individual, Christian leaders, political leaders, or any nation on earth. Our allegiance, our hope is 100% completely in Jesus for the very short amount of time that we are here on earth, which is short by comparison to, to all eternity. And when we lose sight of this, we, we are absolutely no different than the religious leaders, uh, the high priest who condemned Jesus and yoked themselves uh, with the civil and political authorities in order to be able to uh, crucify Jesus. We're doing the exact same thing today. Every time we yoke ourselves with the political and civil authorities and follow them in order to force God's hand, because that's literally what we're doing, is for trying to force God's hand, thinking that we are doing what we are doing is righteous and just, and it has nothing to do with righteousness or justice. Uh, but but every time we we yoke ourselves with with civil and political authorities um, in order to to essentially force God's hand, uh, all we are doing is bringing about our own destruction and the destruction of everyone else. Amen. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonca. Posing the question, is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? Until next time.